0: I don't know if you planned it that way or not, Luke, but that um, Christ as the true and better Adam is kind of the theme uh, of the message today, uh, entitled the message, Who Represents You? And we are either in Christ or we are in Adam, one of those two um, realities for us. So as we um, go to the text today, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty through 28. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your continued kindness to us. I um, marvel, uh, not often enough, but do marvel that you use broken sinners to uh, communicate your word, to exhort one another, uh, to fellowship with one another. Uh, You have been so kind in this regard to do this. Of course, not so that glory would come to us, but so that people would marvel and attribute all the glory to the Lord. And so, we come before you today as those broken people in need of your grace. We pray that you might encourage us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If I could summarize, I'm going to give you uh, a summary of today's message at the very beginning, a summary sentence. And if I could summarize uh, the passage and the text today, I would summarize it this way by saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ will succeed in renewing God's people and God's world by putting all things in subjection under God the Father. God rules and he reigns. He is sovereign and he is supreme. Of all the things that we talk about as Christians and of all of the uh, topics that we like to discuss of all of the Bible passages that we enjoy reading, it seems like one of the things that is left out it oftentimes is God's right to rule, his right to command, and his right to reign. And I would like to begin today by looking at three different passages that all describe specifically Jesus Christ's right to reign Uh, To prepare us for the text in front of us. The first one is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where we simply read this Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every last tongue will confess the Lordship of Christ. In Psalm chapter 2 and verses 7 through 9, we read this: I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession, you, speaking of Christ, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then, of course, Revelation 19, 15 through 16. From his mouth, that is Christ, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury. Of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need to learn how to orient ourselves as the creature accordingly. There is a place for us underneath the sovereignty and lordship of Christ. To some people, these texts or these passages may be uh, a bit jolting. They may even be passages that you would rather avoid. The unbending authority, the unyielding authority of Jesus Christ is repulsive to the natural man. And even as Christians, we sometimes wrestle through this reality. We sometimes struggle because of the influence of our flesh, we wrestle with these kinds of passages. For others, this passage, or these three passages, and specifically today's in 1 15, will be a comfort. In, in reality, they ought to be a comfort to us because resting in the lordship of Christ is the most comforting thing we could possibly do. To simply rest and understand that he is in charge, he is sovereign, and he rules, yes, with authority, but he rules with kindness as well. It turns out that living life as if you were God ends up not working out too well. And today's text is about the authority of Christ. It is about the authority of the Father. And it also is about the fact that the resurrection establishes and gives testimony to this authority. And so let's go ahead and read the passage in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 20 going through verse 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, After destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. I want to look at this passage in three sections today. Verse 20, the fact of the resurrection, 21 through 22, the work of the resurrection, and then 23 through 28, the result of the resurrection. In today's passage, verses 20 through 28, we are talking about the success and the effectiveness of the resurrection and what the resurrection accomplishes. The first verse tells us this in no uncertain terms, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, uh, what you have to understand is last week, uh, as I was preaching, uh, actually, as I was preparing to preach for last week's message, I wrestled through whether or not I should have included verse 20 in that passage, because verse 20 is actually finishing a thought. And ultimately, I decided to do this in two separate messages. I still don't know if that was the right decision or not. But keep in mind that verse 20 is finishing the thought of the previous section. It is actually the culmination of last week's passage. You may recall that there were Corinthian Christians doing what? What were those Corinthian Christians doing? They were denying the resurrection. And Paul gives implications well if there's no such thing as a resurrection then Christ hasn't been raised and if Christ hasn't been raised then your faith is futile if your faith is futile you're still in your sins and he gives this whole long list of all of the implications of if Christ has not been raised and all these things have happened well Paul kind of culminates this in verse 20 where he boldly says but Jesus has been raised from the dead <laughs> but th- th- this has happened and, and and we saw this last week but just to to uh, rehearse this. All of the things that Paul said wouldn't be true if Christ was not resurrected. Because of verse twenty, all those things are true because Christ was resurrected. We, we, our faith is not futile. Uh, those who have trusted in Christ, they're not in their sins any longer. There is forgiveness. There is redemption, and all of those kinds of things. One is uh, reminded uh, in verse twenty, uh, almost of Ephesians chapter two. You, you know. Uh, it's been said that probably the two most important, I, I don't know if we could say they're the most important, but they're very important, two top verse, words in the Bible uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 are, are the words, but God. You, of course, remember that passage where the passage talks about we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were, you know, uh, we, we were in need of something to change us. And all of a sudden he says, but God. And then he talks about the redemption that happens. Well, this is kind of a similar. Uh, kind of a, a verse here um here's the logic of verse 20 you thought there was no such thing as a resurrection but christ it's kind of this almost jolting impacting statement of you don't think there's a resurrection this would have this 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 you would be dead you'd be in your sins but christ <laughs> but but christ rose from the dead he is victorious Christ has been raised from the dead, Jesus is alive, he is no longer in the tomb, and this reality will carry with it certain implications throughout the rest of this passage, beginning here in this very verse. And the first implication that we see that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead is the second half of the verse that says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, a first fruit is, in essence, a down payment. One commentator describes the first fruits as the pledge of the remainder or the assurance of a full harvest. In other words, to call Christ's resurrection the first fruit is to say that there are more resurrections to follow. There is more to come. This is the beginning of many, many, many more resurrections. And not only is this the first one, like oh, it randomly happened to be first, this one is the catalyst of them all. This, this one is the, the the engine that drives the rest of them that are to come. And so the resurrection of Christ is described as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is another way of saying that. Our fate as Christians is the same as Christ's fate. We know, of course, in Romans chapter 6, that passage that talks about our union with Christ. You know that we are in Christ and that there are certain things that happen because I am in Christ. Here's some results of that my life is tied to his life and that's what's going on in this passage if you are in christ today that is to say if you have believed on christ you have repented and believed in him you are a christian then your fate is bound to his if if it were possible that christ didn't raise from that, he did rise from that but if it were possible then that would be your fate but your fate is tied to christ and because christ rose you Will rise also. That is not speculation. It is not a vain hope. It is not a speculative hope. It's not a crossing our fingers and hope that this really happens. It is a guarantee because Christ's resurrection was guaranteed and did happen. My resurrection as a believer in Christ is also guaranteed. I'm bound to him. Now, how does this happen? Well, this is given to us in the next series of verses, in verses 21 through 22. We read, For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now what he does here is he explains this resurrection reality with a compare and contrast. Okay, He is comparing those who are in Adam to those who are in Christ. Now we are not told the details here in 1 Corinthians 15. But we do understand from this passage that in some way, in some form, in some fashion, Adam functioned in a representative capacity for the human race, okay? And so when Adam sinned, him being our representative head, we sinned in Adam. Um, what this means is that the default position, your uh, default firmware that you come into the world carrying, is that you are in Adam when when you are born. You are in Adam, and Adam is your representative. He is uh, representing you in that way. To be born in Adam means that you are born as a sinner, which we call the doctrine of total depravity. That means that contrary to uh, the modern mindset when you, come, when you are born, you are not born into the world as morally neutral. You're not a blank slate. You also are not born into the world as morally righteous. And then you are corrupted through other factors throughout your life. You are born into the world by default as morally corrupt. You are a sinner. You are in Adam. Now, I do understand that this reality of being born in Adam is, um, at a minimum, can make us uncomfortable, and is also something that could be very offensive to us as human beings. But let me just say a little remind, give us a little reminder here, okay? If you Say that's not fair. Keep in mind that you have signed on to that by sinning yourself. Okay. If there's anyone here who can say it is unjust that I am counted underneath Adam because I have never sinned ever in my life, and I was unjustly counted amongst Adam's uh representees. Uh, raise your hand. If, uh, it, it, we have we have validated that. We have signed on to that. We have, in essence, said yes. I agree to be represented by Adam because I sin. Okay. And so there is the fact we can we can say this really in two ways. Uh, we are sinners by nature, which is what it means to be in an Adam, and we are also sinners by choice we have actually done actual sins and so there is real accountability here in this regard um i i talk, i actually talked to someone recently who said um you know it's it's um, adam it's not fair that adam did this um i i didn't do that and so i don't have to be held accountable for that and yes god does hold us accountable for that because we have ratified that in our own lives Now, here's what the good news is, and this is the good news in the gospel, and that is you do not have to remain in Adam. God has made a provision for us, something that He did not make for the fallen angels. God has made a provision for mankind that you do not have to remain in Adam, someone else can be your representative head. Other than Adam. Romans chapter 5. Verses 18 through 19. Gives us a good explanation of this. Therefore. As one trespass. What's that one trespass? Adam's sin. Led to what? Condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness. what is it? Whose act of righteousness is this? Christ's. His righteous life leads to justification and life for all men. See, contrasting these two realities. For, as by the one man's disobedience, again, who's that one man's disobedience? Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now let me just pause here for a second. I'm, I'm going to go back and address the that's not fair crowd one more time okay if you say that's not fair that Adam functions as my representative head then if you want to be consistent you have to say that's not fair that Jesus represents me okay this is not a pick and choose if if it's if it is unfair to be represented by someone else then it's unfair to be represented by someone else whether that's Adam or whether that is Christ now we don't have an option in this there is no neutral territory here you cannot say I choose to be represented only by myself if that were possible, it wouldn't get you any further. (laughs) Okay. But it is not possible. You will either be represented by Adam or you'll be represented by Christ. And if one is unfair, the other is unfair as well. Romans chapter five verses 18 through 19 expresses the identical doctrine as first Corinthians 15 does. In Romans 5, we see that Adam's rebellion led to condemnation and Jesus' obedience led to justification. Okay. Now, looking back at 1 Corinthians 15, we see in a similar way that by Adam comes death and condemnation and by Jesus comes resurrection in this particular text. The goal then for us is not to somehow get in neutral territory imagining that were even possible but the goal for us is to be found in Christ and not in Adam one way to express this reality in a question form is this you can ask the question simply who represents you who, who is your representative head we often ask people are you saved are you justified are you a believer are you born again have you trusted in Christ as Savior we can add one to that list and simply ask the question who represents you Adam or Christ if you are represented by Adam your future eternity is death hell damnation If you are represented by Christ, your fate is his fate. Your life is bound up in his life, which is eternal life. I think probably the Puritan Thomas uh, Goodwin said it best, although maybe slightly outdated English language here, but he, he said it best when he said, there are but two men that are seen standing before God, Adam and Jesus Christ, And these two men have all other men hanging at their girdles. (laughs) Our call, of course, is to be found in Christ. There's there's only two men before God. And you come and stand before God, and he either says that you are part of the group that is in Adam, or he says that you are part of the group that is in Christ. Christ. It's one or the other. There's no third party. There's no neutral territory. There's no no man's land. It is group A or group B. And our call is to be found in Christ and not in Adam. Uh, by the way, you don't have to do anything to be in Adam. Um, that's default. Um and to be in christ is repentance and belief and by god's grace it's not by doing works it's through his grace this brings us to the final section here the result of the resurrection and we read this in verse 23 but each in his own order christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to christ now this verse simply tells us the difference in order And it clarifies a previous statement that I did not elaborate on that you may be wondering about that I am going to elaborate on now. Simply put, Jesus is resurrected first, and then our resurrection comes later. That's straightforward enough. He's the first fruits. He comes logically first, but he also comes uh, physically actually in order first. But I want you to draw, draw attention to where he says this in verse 23. Those who belong to Christ. You see that in verse 23? You see verse 23 says, Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits; Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now some of you may have wondered what it meant. Take your Bible and look back at verse 22. When he said so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see that in verse 22? Okay. Now the question I think that most people would have when they read that in verse 22 is what does the word all mean? When he says that in Christ here all will be made alive, Some may wonder whether or not this teaches uh, a false doctrine called universalism. And of course, this teaching says that because of the work on the cross, that Jesus saves all people down to the last man and woman, Um, whether they believe in him, whether they reject him, no matter what happens, every last member of the human race is saved. And verse 22 would be a verse that they would go to to say that in Christ all will be made alive. And the question is, is that what this is teaching, universalism? And the reason that verse 22 cannot be teaching uh, universalism is because of verse 23 that says that only those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. So verse 23 gives commentary in verse 22. It constrains it and gives it meaning and gives it um, direction. So this helps us to go back into verse 22 and understand verse 22 because of the commentary of verse 23 to mean this. Here's what verse 22 means. It means all those in Adam die, all those in Christ live. If you are in Adam, every last one of you, every last person in that in Adam group dies. And if you are in Christ, all the people in that group live. And verse 23 makes that clear because it simply says, at his coming, it will be those who belong to Christ, meaning that there are those who do not belong to Christ that will not be raised. From the dead salvation then justification is clearly limited to those who are in Christ which brings us to verse 24 that says this then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power these are also resurrection implications one commentator describes this as the restoration of a dominion gone astray there's a dominion it went astray and christ is fixing it one is reminded of daniel chapter 7 where this theme of the dominion of christ comes into focus and you see all the way back in daniel uh, a discussion of the dominion of jesus christ and we see i saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man this is christ And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is what kind of a dominion? It is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You see, Adam was given a dominion and he perverted it he destroyed it he ruined it it was kind of a sort of pandora's box so to speak he messed it up and jesus is coming to put things right and declare himself as the rightful ruler this will involve a number of things Verse 24 tells us that this restoration of a dominion gone astray involves Jesus destroying every human rule and every human authority and every human power. It will involve Jesus giving the kingdom to his father after this happens. And verse 25 explains this by saying he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus puts his enemies under his feet. now this may seem like a step too far for some because after all the predominant i think i'm okay saying predominant the predominance american view of jesus is that jesus is this very permissive and passive sort of a person that, that Jesus just, it's the whole um, come as you are, leave as you came mentality. She just, Jesus accepts us as we are, which he does. But the American view is that he accepts us to remain as we are. Whereas the biblical view is he accepts us as we are to go then and change us into his own likeness. That's, that's, that's the difference, okay? And so don't anyone say that, that, that I don't believe that Jesus says, come as you are, okay? He says that, okay? You don't have to clean your life up first before you come to Christ because of the doctrine of grace, okay? Okay? But Jesus does not leave us where he found us, and he does not affirm our innate sinful nature and and permit that, okay? This is, however, I think the predominant American view is that Jesus accepts us as we are and permits us to remain as we are. And actually, in fact, I have heard some go as far as saying that Jesus wants you to kind of cultivate that inner who you are and to express it even more um, kind of a thing. To many American Christians, Jesus does not seem like this 1 Corinthians 15 passage. He doesn't seem like the reigning type or the destroying type that he's going to destroy these false dominions. Jesus doesn't seem like the kind of God who will destroy his enemies. After all, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? So this doesn't seem to fit. But this passage makes it clear that Jesus does do these things. And I would suggest that part of the issue that we have in our perception of Christ is is that um, we, f- we forget that Jesus does not have a flattened personality? I-, I think culturally in America, Christianity, we think that Jesus' personality only does one thing, it's one dimensional or monolithic. And the danger is that we that, that, that we could become consumed with one attribute of Christ and ignore the rest of them now in this particular passage what I'm saying is we need to be careful and guard ourselves against only talking about the mercy of Christ and forgetting that his personality and attributes are more than that and that he's just and that he's wrathful and so on and so forth now I can say although this is not what I think the passage is addressing but to just clarify for clarity's sake here is that there is also a danger of flattening his personality in the other direction and only perceiving of him as a wrathful God and forgetting about his mercy and his grace and his love and his gentleness and his kindness and his patience. All we're saying is that it's dangerous to flatten his personality no matter what direction you want to take it. Jesus does not have a monolithic personality or attributes. He does not have a one-dimensional personality or attributes. If we want to know who Jesus is, we need to know the whole testimony of Scripture, not just the pick-and-choose passages that we want to take away from it. Okay? So let me give you some examples of this. The same Jesus who said oh Jerusalem Jerusalem how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings that same Christ also says depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels that's the same person now somehow we've got to harmonize all of that together and it does harmonize And the way that it harmonizes is he doesn't have a flat personality or flat attributes. Again, the same Jesus who sat and ate with tax collectors and sinners in their very presence at the very table with them, also frightens the world in his wrath so that men and women cry out in anguish, Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Same person. This is the same Christ. I'm not... Now, American Christianity, I think, on the whole, takes it in the direction of we're going to emphasize the eating with tax collectors and sinners. We're going to emphasize him gathering Jerusalem together as a hen Jerusalem. And we're going to forget about these other things. And what I'm not saying is that we that we swing the pendulum and jump ship and just only talk. Don't ever build your theology on an isolated selection of verses. You, don't do that. Build your theology on the whole Bible. Because the whole Bible is how we understand what's... E- e- Every doctrine is not in every verse. It's it's throughout the whole Bible. Um, And so we see Christ's attributes spread out through these different passages. Jesus Christ and his attributes are more well-rounded than we would like to admit. Um, And we understand this, I think, intuitively. We we understand that... um, Different scenarios call for us to express different um, attributes in our own lives. Um, We, after all, are not going to talk to uh, a criminal breaking into our house in the same way that we talk to our wife, okay? If you have the same tone and the same everything, that's very problematic, okay? Uh, There is different scenarios calling for different expressions of different attributes. And we see here in our present passage in 1 Corinthians 15, a certain um, selection of Christ's attributes being expressed in a certain way. And particularly, we zoom in here and see his lordship, And his authority being expressed. And that is perfectly compatible with everything else in scripture. Jesus conquers his enemies. And he puts his enemies underneath his footstool. And that is good. And that is glorious. And that is God honoring. And it is Christ exalting. And it also happens to be good for us as believers in Christ. Jesus conquers his enemies. The last one, namely death. Aren't you glad Jesus conquers his enemies? (laughs) Namely death. Because all things, including death, is put underneath his feet. Verse 27, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. This verse looks back to Psalm 8, verse 6, that says you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. Here is the logic of verse 27. God the Father puts all things underneath Jesus' feet. Jesus is given all authority all dominion, all rulership. This does not mean that God the Father is now subjected to Jesus. No, as it is plain, the Father is not subject to the Son. Okay? There is still, even in the Trinity, a a divine hierarchy. This does not mean that there is a different worth or value in the Trinity, but that the uh, order goes in a certain order. Then verse 28 says this, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Once Jesus Christ has crushed all his enemies, and once all things are subjected to him, then the Son will rest from this task and be subjected to the Father. What is the purpose? So that God may be what? All all. In all. On this, John Calvin says, All things will be brought back to God as their alone beginning and end, that they may be closely bound to him. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the First and the Last, the Beginning and the End. Genesis 1.1, in the Beginning God. Life is all about God. Okay. Everything that happens is about God. Everything he does is about himself. All of creation is about God. You exist to serve God. It's all about him. It's important for us to remember a lesson that I think is harder for us to learn than we would care to admit. And that lesson is this. God is God and you are not. It is also important to remember that God's commitment to grace and mercy does not mean he will share his sovereignty with us. We will be subjected, and we are subjected, underneath him. God is Lord, and he is ruler, and he is king, and he is in charge. You and I need to remember that we must find ourselves underneath his lordship here and now. As we saw at the beginning in the opening of this message, One day, every knee will bow to his lordship. You can do that now, or you can do that later with consequences. The question is not whether you will bow the knee. You will bow the knee. The question is whether you do it willingly or under duress prior to being cast into the lake of fire. We also need to remember not to fall in love with the very rules authorities and powers that he will one day demolish because god is demolishing the powers of this world we need to be cautious not to love those powers of this world first john says it this way do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him in other words don't love god's enemies this includes the visible rulers and the visible authorities and the visible powers, but it also includes the invisible ones, which includes vain philosophies. Note this in Colossians 2, eight: see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. What this means then is that we have a lot of dangers we need to be on the lookout for, and a lot of enemies of Christ that are lurking around, visible and invisible. We need to be on guard against God's physical enemies, but we also need to be on guard against God's ideological enemies. And if you are wondering what some of those ideological enemies look like, come to our nine o'clock service, because we've been talking about some of those uh, enemies of Christ. One might inquire as to how we may be enabled to avoid clinging to these enemies of God. How, how might one go about it? If one were to say, I want to avoid making a partnership or a pact with God's enemies, what, what ought one to do? And the prescription is actually rather simple. It's given to us in John 10 in verse 27. And that simply is this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's not very complicated, It's not very hard. It's, it's not first go get a PhD in detecting false doctrine. Um, it's not do this or do that. I'm not saying we couldn't be helped by education in that regard. But at the end of the day, the, the spiritual reality is that if you are Christ's, then you know Christ's voice. I'm not saying that we can't go through seasons of, ah, what's, ah, ah, I don't know if this, I don't know if that, I don't know what. We can go through those kinds of seasons, but ultimately the voice of Christ will prevail in drawing his own sheep to himself. Every Christian will ultimately prevail in following the voice of Christ, not because they have the strength within or the discernment within, but because Christ compels us to come. What this means practically speaking, is that according to today's text, we need to be found in Christ, not in Adam. Those who are in Adam cannot hear Christ's voice. In fact, those who are in Adam will hear Christ's voice as the voice of an enemy, as the voice of um, someone who is deceiving them. Um, we're going, going through the... Uh, um, Lord of the Rings books, um, and we're in the second one right now, and this was not included in in the movies, um, so it was my first time hearing this part of it, but uh, there's a section where uh, Saruman is in Isengard, and he has an opportunity to talk to the people, and he speaks, and his voice sounds as if it were sweet, and then all of a sudden, Gandalf comes in, and he talks, And they say, compared to Saruman's voice, Gandalf seems harsh and proud and all of these kinds of things. And Saruman, of course, is trying to persuade them with his voice, but just the very sound of his voice is persuasive to them, so much so that some almost are persuaded to go on his side. And and the same thing basically is true here. If you are in Christ, then you will hear Christ's voice as the true voice, and not be taken and led astray. If you are in Adam, you will perceive Christ's voice as to be the voice of an enemy. To be, oh, that's that's I couldn't do that. That's proud. That that's that's bigoted, that's whatever you want to say that it is. We need to be found in Christ, not in Adam. I have three points of application for us today. The first one is this: trust that Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of your future resurrection. That is to say that you will rise again because Christ rose again, okay? My life is bound to his. The second one is this: ask who represents me. And of course you understand what this text what this question means based on the passage today. If you are found to be in Adam, if that's your lot, then repent and believe in Christ so that Christ represents you. In other words, uh, you need to be born again. You need to be saved. You need to trust in Christ. And the third one is this: refuse to ally yourself with Christ's enemies, knowing that Christ will put his enemies under his feet. Find refuge in him. Don't make partnerships. Um, what partnership has Christ with Belial, Second Corinthians chapter 6? Um, let us find hope in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, God, for this passage and this text, for your goodness to us. Help us to trust in Christ alone. Help us to find hope in the resurrection. Help us to know that you are sovereign and you are Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.